Okay everybody, so welcome back to the Forward Together podcast. We are delighted to be back for a third series. Paul, you're back again. Paul Gosling, how are you? I'm grand, how are you? Hi, dead on, hey, dead on. Delighted that we're doing this next series of conversations on where this place is heading. Um, we've got a lot of exciting stuff lined up again, as always. So to give people the, the context of what the Forward Together podcast is, it's produced by Hollywood Trust. Uh, Hollywood Trust, a community relations focused organisation based at the heart of Derry. And this podcast is funded through the Community Relations Council for Northern Ireland's Media Grant Scheme. So, Paul, remind people of what the Forward Together podcast does, if you could. It's looking at this place and asking how we can make this place a better place. And we've had success in the past by interviewing a range of different people with different experiences who came up with a lot of very positive ideas, productive, how we can actually engage people more fully, effectively, and also what the ideas are that could actually make this place a better place. Brilliant. And we're doing 18 more of these. Uh, we've done 18 in the first two series as well. Um, as, just as, as a reminder to people, we did a publication, or rather you did a publication coming out of Series 1 as well, the Lessons from the Troubles and Unsettled Peace book. That's still available for anybody who wants it through Kindle or through Hollywell Trust or however people want to get it. But today we're starting uh, the next series of conversations with Simon Hoare, MP. Do you want to tell people who Simon is? Yeah, Simon is an MP in England, uh, his constituency in the southwest of England, uh, but he is chair of the Northern Ireland Select Committee. So he's a member of the House of Commons whose role um, as the Parliament Committee chair is to look at what's happening in Northern Ireland, to take evidence of things there uh, and to come up with uh, suggestions, analysis of what's happening within Northern Ireland. Okay. And as always, it, it was a really interesting and in-depth conversation. Um, but you start off, Paul, by asking him about apologies and maybe the value of apologies coming from people to help us move forward here. Yeah. And to put that in context, the, the, one of the, the, the principles behind this series of podcasts is to take the ideas from the previous series and run some of those ideas past people that we're interviewing. And one of the things that was said to us in previous podcast interviews was that if organizations, political parties could provide genuine apologies for past events, that might help to build trust and might help to build a, a better foundation for activities in the future and the reassurance that we're not going to go back to violence. So that was really why we were asking those questions of Simon about whether actually if there was an apology for the past, whether that would help us build things for the future. And, well, we, Simon was not entirely convinced by that. Okay, okay. I, th I think one of the other things, it, one of the other challenges that come, came up through your conversation with him was reform. And when we try to reform this place, it's like we constantly seem to be carrying out reforms of all types of stuff and, and never really acting on them. But Simon puts a lot of that down to... Confidence or lack of confidence and longevity as a as a factor. Yeah, I mean, clearly, we we've got a problem here in terms of the fact we we have real difficulty in reforming things. And I mean, it's always worth remembering that devolution in Northern Ireland is very different from that in Scotland or Wales because we've got a multi-party executive. 
we've got an executive comprising political parties that don't have perhaps confidence in each other, have difficult types of relationships. And you can see that played out or not played out in the fact that the health service was reviewed. The, the Bengoa report came out suggesting significant changes to the way the health service operates in Northern Ireland because we've got the even before COVID, we had the longest waiting list, the longest waiting times of anywhere in the UK. Uh, but we still haven't had the reforms proposed by Ben Goa. And then we have the conversation here about whether we can actually achieve reform in other parts of the public sector. OK, well, look, let, let's hear the conversation that you had with Simon now. First of all, thank Simon, you. thank you very much indeed for doing this. This is much appreciated. And this will, in fact, be the, the launch podcast for the series, uh, the, our third series. And one of the big problems we have in Northern Ireland is how we deal with the past. And I don't mean simply in a judicial way, but also in a political way. We, we had the experience with Bloody Sunday that David Cameron, as Prime Minister, launched an apology on behalf of what was effectively previous administrations. Um, do you think there's a, a possibility, an opportunity, a role for political leaders in Northern Ireland to do something similar here to try and give us a fresh start, to use that expression, in terms of expressing regret for what their political parties have done in the past? I, I never think an apology hurts because I think it shows contrition, it shows humility, and I think it shows comprehension of the scale of the impact of the event or the events for which one is apologising. And, and that's why um, David Cameron's apology was, I think, so well received and, and had the impact um, that it did. There is, I think, a, a danger, though, in the, in the narrative of apology, which is how far back does one go? And for by by what degree are the sins of the fathers visited upon the sons? And I think you can then either get into um, competitive apology making, which I think actually devalues the the currency and potentially uh, weakens the sincerity. Um, but also it then becomes rather competitive uh, that, you know, who has uh, accepted? Uh, was it made in the right way? Was it enough or is there still other things to apologise for? And you always have this sort of cancel out culture. And notwithstanding that the, the I, I think the very identifiable and legitimate good that the apology for Bloody Sunday uh, provided, my hunch is that we are far better focused on better shaping the present and the future than continually looking backwards over our shoulders. And that is an incredibly hard and difficult thing to do. For some, are uh, impossible. But I don't, I don't think it's as naive as it possibly sounds. I mean, the context for the question is points made in previous podcast interviews where... Sophie Long, who was at one point uh, a political um, candidate for the Progressive Unionist Party, said that unless they heard promises from Republicans, not only that they were committed to the political process, but actually they regretted and would never return to the past, 
they could never be fully trusted by loyalist communities. And also Linda Irvine, who also has connections with loyalism, had said that every community had to recognise it was not simply the people who were involved in the armed conflict that were responsible for the deaths, but also those people in their communities who egged them on and who gave support for them. So it's in that context of where, how you deal with the past to give confidence for the future. Yes, and, and, and I can understand uh, that. But again, you then get into the, well, was the or is the apology um, sincere and freely made? Or was it made um, in order to move something forward? And therefore, by some, can be dismissed as, well, just paying lip, lip service or ticking a particular box. I, I, I mean, in all honesty, I think, and I think this really came to the fore with the, with the recent, um, or relatively recent interregnum with regards to uh, the existence of Stormont, that you were start, we were starting to hear from, you know, all communities across Northern Ireland we're not so much interested in, in, in process and the past, although we can't, you know, forget it. We can't have a sort of collective memory dump. But we just wish you politicians and public servants would focus on serving us and meeting our contemporary and future needs, be it health, be it education, transport and the like, instead of continually picking over coals, which of themselves will will cool over a period of time. You know, all sides did terrible things uh, in the firm conviction that what they were doing was right and in the best interests of their community. Um, uh, and I think that's all recognised now. Um, it doesn't detract, as I say, from the Bloody Sunday uh, apology, because that was an event of enormous uh, magnitude. But I think we have to take almost as a given that there is no appetite to go back to things as they were. There was actually, I think, quite a willing appetite to give up what had become uh, an accepted uh, modus operandi. And I think the, the speed by which people moved away from them, clearly not fully, but in, in great part, um, almost of itself points to the, the wrongness and futility of, of the actions which we saw, uh, not just during the Troubles, but, but prior to that as well. I'm really glad you, you put it in that way, Simon, because that takes us into what really is the core of these podcasts, which is how we make progress for the future. And <coughs> the most comprehensive proposal for progress was the Bengoa proposals for the reform of the health service, which have not really gone very far, and there's been suggestions not only that we should make sure that the Bengura reforms are actually properly implemented, but also that we should perhaps use that as a template for other similar reform analysis proposals, for example, in the education system, perhaps in other places as well. Uh, what's your feeling about that? Well, I, I think that... that chimes very much with, with, with my thinking, which is, uh, and indeed from conversations, that um, I, I think a small and dwindling number on, on, on extremes of both sides um, uh, get themselves so wrapped up 
with the history, uh, and I studied history, I'm a keen student of history, history is important, but they lose sight of the, of the here and now and the tomorrow. And there is a huge amount of um, uh, modernization, of attention, of, of creative political thinking um, in uh, education, in, in, in welfare, in health, in housing, lots of areas which actually affect people's daily lives in the here and now. And I think that is really, everybody's paying a lot of tax. I think we've all understood uh, as a result of COVID, the huge force for good that public service can can be. And I think actually the appetite will be, uh, will be strengthened to see resolute attention on public service, uh, delivery uh, and reform. But sadly, Bengoa hasn't got very far, has it? So how do we overcome that blockage? Well, I, th I think there needs to be um, the, the executive itself and, and the institutions of Stormont need to have confidence in their permanence and that um, Stormont sitting is not the aberration uh, between um, Stormont collapsed and Stormont trying to resurrect itself. I think it needs to have the, the confidence of longevity to believe that it can uh, begin um, and then instigate change and see it through. That needs to be based clearly in some areas uh, with regards to, uh, to compromise. And it may be, this, this, this may be the um, the big problem with, with delivering, um, you know, sort of uh, seismic public service uh, reform, which is by definition the nature of governance being as it is, uh, which is coalition, um, compromise, uh, accommodation. Um, well, if those are your ingredients, don't be surprised that the outcome isn't going to be big, bold and revolutionary. So it may be, it may be that um, change is, uh, change is small and slow in say comparison with a majority government in, in Westminster or, 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 or Labour-led Wales or uh, SNP-led Scotland, but all because it is slow and in bite-sized chunks rather than a whole banquet rolled out um, doesn't make it, I think, any less important to focus upon trying to deliver. And what type of reforms would you like to see in the education system? Well, I mean, I've got to be careful on this. This is a this is a devolved matter. This is a devolved matter, and, and there's nothing worse than um, members of parliament. We were discussing this um, uh, yesterday afternoon in the procedure committee. Uh, where I and my Welsh uh, fellow Select Committee Chair and Scottish Affairs Select Committee Chair were giving evidence on that. There's nothing worse than when, uh, you know, the mothership, for want of a better phrase, Westminster sort of starts weighing in in its size nines, uh, telling, uh, you know, um, setting things out and saying how things should be. I'm a product of um, of faith-based education. I'm a, I'm a Catholic. I went to a Catholic primary school and a Catholic secondary school. And I think the role of the faith schools is incredibly important. Um, that said, 
because we have a very good mix. You know, I, I, in GB, um, I think if we could see uh, an acceleration of uh, of interfaith or intercommunity um, schools, because we have to remember, uh, you know, the population and the communities of Northern Ireland are not binary. There are three, if you like. There's a, there's a whole raft and growing of people who have arrived in Northern Ireland to, 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 to work, to, to set up base, to, to, to create a home and put down roots. And very often they are forgotten uh, in, in the debate on these sorts of sorts of issues. Um, but I, you know, so, so I, I think that there's enough intelligence and, and, and goodwill and common sense within the political class uh, and practitioners in Northern Ireland to know what it is that education needs to do. It needs to provide well-rounded individuals uh, equipped with the skills and, and outlook and education uh, to meet the challenges which they're going to face uh, throughout, their, throughout their adult lives. It is also, uh, in that Northern Irish context, uh, a golden opportunity to... Um, to make sure that, the, that, that this and future generations have a better understanding of, of each community rather than the sort of blinkers on and, and, and almost there be dragons, you know, marked on the marked on the map. Uh, the one thing I, I, I will give a direct uh, comment upon, because I, 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 I appreciate that that was sort of rather um, sort of headline type answer. And that is, an, it's, a, it's a concern I've had and I've I've raised it with Dublin and I've raised it with the Department of Education and with the Northern Ireland Secretary, and that is the Turing and Erasmus programme. Now, I think it's fantastic that young people in Northern Ireland will have the opportunity to apply for uh, for both schemes uh, if they if they so wish, a tremendous opportunity uh, open to them. Um, um, I think we all just need to make sure that Turing, because it's the Westminster government, um, initiative doesn't become the um, the, the sort of uh, unionist scheme of choice, and Erasmus, because it comes from uh, the EU but filtered through Dublin, doesn't become the choice of uh, the, the sort of nationalists' choice. Um, I think we just have to watch and make sure that the rubric of their operation is such uh, that you don't have that sort of uh, opportunity. Um, uh, but, but delivered on, on sectarian lines. Inadvertently, it would be, but I think it's something one just needs to watch over. It's worth just mentioning, Simon, in passing, and it is only in passing, the regret of people where I am in Derry that uh, without the Erasmus programme of the past, we won't be receiving people from other countries. So good though it is that students will be going elsewhere, it is a major loss both in cultural terms, but also in economic terms, that we will be losing those tourists and visitors and students to, to this place here. But I think what you're you're saying well, well, essentially. Can, 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 yeah. I, can, can I just can I just comment on that because because I, I think fundamentally um, you are you are right, and I mean I, I've got three young daughters of 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 twelve, um, just turned eleven and uh, and uh, eight coming up 28 i think sometimes but certainly her birth certificate tells me that she's eight um and their outlook even at that tender age is so much more open and less hogtied by history and previous uncertainties and prejudices 
uh, than my generation was, and I believe intervening generations uh, as well. So I, I take the point entirely that I think we have a very um, open-minded, uh, small-l liberal um, uh, whole cohort now of young, of young people who, if we are to get them involved in the political process, in the doing of politics, in the understanding that politics and think tanks and the like can deliver change, then we, they need to be certain uh, that it is for, for them. And we just need to make sure that we are casting our politics as wide as we possibly can to make sure that they don't switch off and they think that change can come from all sorts of routes, but not, for po but not from the political route, because politics has got itself just too hog-tied uh, with too many things of the past. Well, that takes us very neatly into the next point, which I wanted to ask you about, which is how we extend democratic engagement. Now, clearly, in the north of Ireland, we're very influenced by the experience of the south of Ireland, which has very successfully used citizens' assemblies. Um, and we're also very conscious that the civic forum that was supposed to have been established under the Good Friday Agreement no longer exists. And there is no second chamber here. So the question is, how should we extend engagement across the different communities, which, as you say, is more than two communities? Yes, I mean, I mean, um, none of the devolves um, are anything other than uh, unicameral. And therefore, I think um, it, 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 that is a harder issue for Northern Ireland to, to wrestle with, uh, principally because of its size. And therefore, the size of Stormont um, does put a huge amount of weight uh, in terms of delivery on the shoulders of, of MLAs. Everybody who's elected has a great weight on their shoulders, but I, I think it is um, particularly acute uh, with regards to, uh, to, to Stormont. Um, I, I must confess uh, that, you know, um, that young cohort will probably be throwing their hands up in disbelief when I say this, possibly thinking, well, that Simon sounded incredibly moderate and reasonable. I believe our citizens' assemblies are those public bodies where, through the ballot box, um, people have been returned to serve, and that could be the council chamber, uh, it can be the European Parliament, it can be the devolved assemblies, it can be Westminster. Those are the citizens' assemblies. And as soon as you start to to break that understanding, I think you further compound what is a what is an issue, and I and I firmly believe that we politicians are very slow to recognise this, is that uh, is is a, is a perception that politics is about maintaining the status quo and not delivering change, and I think that we have a a, a real duty on us now at this time to demonstrate that that is not the case. Otherwise, the appetite for citizens' assemblies and other things. Um, start to take root and demand starts to grow. We need to, to reinforce uh, and to reignite the if you want change done, it is done through the democratic process. So engage, stand for election, vote in elections, write to people who are elected, make the case. But it's those fora which have been elected, which are quite properly the ones which should take decisions. In which case, we need to do more work around the rather low turnouts for the elections in Northern Ireland, because that must be the other side of that coin. Yes. 
Yes, uh, and you know, I, I think if you look if you look at turnout uh, across the UK, I mean, it, often it will depend upon if it, you know, for a general election if there is a big issue. I mean, for example, that you know the, the, the Brexit elections of of, uh, of sort of seventeen and, and 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 nineteen. Part of the issue, I think, is and, and and don't think for a moment that I'm advocating that it should come under threat. But since the uh, the Great Reform Act. Uh, of the 1830s, uh, the franchise of the United Kingdom has only been getting deeper and wider. Um, and that is a perfectly good thing. But it has never come under threat. We've, ne you've, we've never had a party or a political movement that has sought to in any way dilute um, the democratic functions of this country. We've never had a a totalitarian regime of right or left, where where democratic expressions and freedoms have been uh, have been squashed, and I think out of that um, uh, comfort comes complacency, um, and and complacency is always a danger because if people don't vote, they end up with politicians that they really didn't want uh, to see. But again, politics has to be about a battle of ideas. Uh, it, uh, it, uh, we don't want the merging, or, or you know, there needs to be water, clear water between political philosophies and their and the solutions which they bring uh, to different uh, problems. You'll often hear in, in sort of safe constituencies, well, there's no point voting. You know, you could put a wooden spoon up with a blue rosette, a red rosette, a green rosette, an orange rosette, or whatever, and it will win. Just because, uh, just because it always does. But you still need to count the popular vote of opposition, and funny things happen because you know there are all sorts of elections where peculiar results can come out. So it is that perpetual need to reinforce civics. Uh, I remember doing civics when I was at school, which was the rights and responsibilities of a citizen what we can legitimately expect from politicians and from governance with both a small and a large G, and what we can do as citizens to shape it. And I think we need a bit more, a bit more of that. In which case, what is the role for the individual in shaping our society beyond voting? And how do we use that to create a more shared and integrated society in Northern Ireland? Well, there's, I mean, there's a huge amount that people can do. There's um, there's the pressure of social media. And when social media is used well and is used properly, it is a very, very powerful tool on political um, mindset. Um, there is the, you know, writing to or emailing um, uh, elected uh, individuals. And if one's not satisfied with the answer, you know, come back and come back and come back again. It's, um, you know, politicians used to have uh, public meetings um, or meetings in town halls or village halls, etc. Um, they didn't stop because they didn't enjoy them. They stopped because people stopped coming. And there is this responsibility, you know, that in order to be heard or in order to be listened to, you actually need to articulate what's on your mind. And too many people, I think, just say, uh, well, you know, uh, it won't do any good or they won't listen to me or 
I'm afraid of the whole process. I, I, you know, I, I might not have the right words or the right sort of language. That's something we've had to dismiss. But one thing that always strikes me in my memory about sort of engaged democracy, I remember coming out of the uh, House of Commons not long after the 2016 um, Brexit uh, referendum. And there was a quite a big demonstration of predominantly young people who were very passionate Remainers. And I happened to be walking through... They stopped, a group stopped me and said, uh, you look like an MP. Now, quite what an MP looks like, but um, I said, well, yes, I, you know, guilty as charged. Uh, and they asked me which party I was from, so I told them. And they asked me how I voted in the referendum, and I told them, and that sort of slightly got me off the hook. And I asked them how many of them had voted. And I must have been talking to a group of about 20 youngsters, all of whom were of voting age, and only 10 had voted. And I asked the others why they hadn't. They said, well, we, we tweeted about it. We, uh, we, we, we posted about it. I said, well, did you not deliver any leaflets or put up posters or go to meetings or knock on doors? Oh, no, 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 we didn't do that. I said, well, that is the doing of politics. That's the practice of politics. And there was a look of, I won't say amazement, but a, oh. And I said, you know, the returning officer doesn't count tweets or posts or blogs or Facebook pages or whatever. He can, he or she can, ballot papers, and let's not forget that. So, focusing on on this challenge of integration and sharing within Northern Ireland, do you think there's an integrationist? I mean, in, uh, a structural solution to this. I mean, should it's been suggested that we might have a department for reconciliation, or that every single major project should be assessed for whether it uh, contributes towards a more shared society? Do you think there's a a structural solution to our problems? Gosh, that's, uh, I mean, that's the $6 billion question and there's no particular answer to it. Um, hindsight is that skill which politicians always wish they had at the time they were taking the decisions. Um, flowing immediately from um, the Good Friday Agreement, some form of uh, replication of the South African experience of reconciliation, I think would have been would have been more than helpful and may be paying dividends. I, th I you know, the, the basic problem, and this is where you then have to cut into sort of, you know, the hard fact of politics, is that in order to, to have reconciliation, there has to be trust. And uh, trust is, uh, is very hard won and very, very easily uh, lost in my experience. And it is the lack of trust. It's the it's the embedded suspicion that the other side has too much otherness about it, that the other side wants to do me down, wants to deny me of my birthright, um, has bastardized my history, has frustrated my ambition. How can I trust these people? And a unionist can say that of the nationalists. The nationalists can say that of unionism. And unionists can look south to Dublin and say, you're sitting there just below the border, uh, you know, waiting to pounce at a moment's notice um, to instigate the reunification of the island of Ireland. Um, we are fighting this fight with one hand tied behind our back. And that hand has written on its glove the word trust. And it's the absence of trust and it's the absence of the confidence to trust, uh, which is the biggest hurdle.
And I'm afraid, you know, um, it was Gladstone, wasn't it, who wrote in his diaries in when he was up at Horton, you know, felled a lime, pacified Ireland, um, if only it was that easy. Um, I, I haven't got the, uh, the magic solution to that, but in, unless or until we can engender an abiding trust, and God knows people have tried on both sides uh, for a whole variety of ways, that is always our stumbling block. What is your motives? I can never remember, there was an American president when he was told that one of his opponents had died, um, replied by saying, oh, I wonder what he meant by that. And that is, I think, often the problem. It's try. It, well, okay, you're doing that. You're saying that, but what do you really mean? What's your real motive? What are you really trying to achieve here? That's the problem, and that problem stems from history. And sometimes it's the truthful retelling of history, and sometimes it's the twisting of history, and sometimes it's the partial recollection of history through an oral tradition. But it doesn't help. Isn't another way of looking at it that people are focused on their differences rather than their similarities? Yes, and um, I, and I, I think that's true. Um, I mean, sometimes, I mean, some of my colleagues, um, I think, look on me and say, Simon, sometimes you're so um, uh, woolly, are you really a Tory? Well, I, was, I wasn't born a Tory, I became a Tory, and I'm sure I will die um, uh, a Tory, but it's it's a point I, I I often make in the immigration debate, and and I know for lots of people, immigration and asylum and economic migrancy all gets merged into one great sort of mess of pottage, um, and I always make the point that if when we are having these debates and these discussions and and um, so on and so forth, let's just remind let's just remind ourselves that however these people are. Um, arrived at our shores for whatever motivation etc they are our fellow man and if we start from that fundamental recollection i think it helps to shape the debate so if you start from the basis that irrespective of one's tradition if any we are all fellow human beings we are tenants of the planet not not uh, not uh, freeholders we are all trying to do our best to make our society our world a better place, then you do, I think, start to say there are huge, huge differences amongst us on outlook, on principle, on, on all sorts of things. But none of us, whether it's in Cardiff Bay, whether it's in Holyrood, whether it's in Westminster, whether it's in Stormont, nobody ever stands for election on the platform of, I want to make things worse for you, or... I want to make things better for my supporters and worse for those who don't support me. That's not the motivation of public service. And if we reminded ourselves about what the key motivation is, which is public service, to serve all of our constituents, irrespective of how or whether they voted, uh, then I think you can start on that. Let's put the differences aside. What do we all want to achieve? We want to achieve a healthier nation. How do we do that? Well, it's all sorts of things. There's some education, there's lifestyle stuff, but there's also the National Health Service. Right. How do we make the health service as best it can possibly be to get the very best health outcomes for our people? So if we all if we all identify the end results which we agree upon, now we may fight like cat and dog about how we get from A to B, but we ultimately know that B is the destination that we want to arrive at. Uh, arrive at. 
And if you kept that at the forefront of your mind, there's no guarantee of success, but I think it could be, uh, it, it's, it's more than likely to prove its efficacy. Thank you very much indeed, Simon. That's a, a, a good point at which to end. So that's much appreciated and thank that's you very much pleasure. for your time. Thank, thank you. Thank you for having me. I've enjoyed it. Thank you. Good. Bye thank bye. you. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay, a really interesting conversation there, Paul, as I'm sure you'll agree. I, I was struck by the fact that uh, we always, throughout the last two series, have been talking about civil engagement and civic engagement and citizens' assemblies and stuff. I was struck by Simon's definition of, of what that is. Yes, and, and it's very contrary to really what you and I have been saying and what most of the interviewees in Northern Ireland have been saying which is that we had the civic forum that was part of the Good Friday Agreement. The civic forum doesn't exist anymore. Should it be replaced? Should we have citizens' assemblies as per the South? And most of the people we've co had conversations with have been keen to broaden that civic engagement. Uh, Simon takes a different view, um, and perhaps that reflects the difference between the political frameworks of England and those of Northern Ireland, where we just need perhaps to have different voices in the conversation here. But anyway, Simon's not convinced by that, clearly. He believes that the political system, elections, give you that representative view. And actually, I mean, to be fair, that's what uh, um, the DUP's uh, uh, Simon Hamilton has said to us in, in a previous podcast as well, actually, that if you have broader civic engagement, that undermines the role of the elected political representative. Mm. Okay. Well, uh... I think near the end of the, the conversation with Simon as well, he talks about a way forward, but that trust must be really important or trust is important in building a way forward. But that is driven by, he says, agreeing the outcome before or with each other and then heading towards that. What do you think? Well, that reminds me of the conversation that I've had with Dennis Bradley who says that the real problem about achieving progress in Northern Ireland is that we can't agree where we're going to, because for unionists, the out outcome is to further cement the relationship with Great Britain to solidify the United Kingdom as an entity, uh, whereas for nationalists and Republicans, the objective is to create a united Ireland. And that there is no way, in, Dennis would point out, that you can reconcile those two differing objectives. So I think that is the flaw, there I say, in what Simon's saying, that actually, if fundamentally your objective is that political constitutional outcome, rather than simply making this place a better place, then it's very difficult to agree the, the final destination. Yeah, yeah, and everything else flows from there. Okay, well, well, that's it for this first episode of the Forward Together podcast for Series 3. Paul? Thanks very much. Is it good to be back? It's brilliant. Ah, good stuff. Good stuff. So thanks to everybody who's involved. Thanks to Simon for taking the time to meet with Paul. Um, thanks to Michael Barways for helping us out with the editorial support. And of course, their funders, the Community Relations Council. So look out for future episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And we'll chat to you again soon. Bye.